Talk Show. Recorded live. I'm sorry. Somebody said they had a prayer request, and, and that's fine to ask. I just don't do prayers in public, right? We should all pray in private. I um, I explained the reason for that a couple of weeks ago during a program I did on Matthew chapter 5, I believe it was, with all of the scriptural reasons. Okay, hello. This is William Fink, and this is Christogeneron Tokshu. It is Friday, June 3rd, 2011, and tonight I will be presenting Matthew chapters 10 and 11, Yahweh willing. I, um, well, well, first, next week I'll be at my son's house in Virginia, again, if God so wills it, and, and um, I hope to be, and, and I'll be doing, or I should say I'll be scheduling a program with Clifton Emmerheiser next Friday night, and we're going to talk about Clifton's recent papers that the the angels that sin chained in darkness. Clifton, I think, is just published two installments of that at emmaheiser.christogenia.org, and there are more to come. I did a, um, surely just about everybody here knows it, I did a program on Wednesday morning with a fellow named Charles Giuliani, who really seemed like a pretty decent guy in emails and, and in our between um, or during commercial banter. Uh, I realized later that my discussions with him during the commercials simply alerted him as to my positions and, and I believe the solidity of my positions on in many aspects of our cause and alerted him not to bring certain topics up. The first hour of the program I thought was beneficial. I got to um, display some of the reasons from history that we believe the way we do, and I got to display some of the biblical reasons why two C-line Christian identists believe the way they do. And I really believe that he used some um, standard Judeo verses, misinterpreted, taken out of context, to try to trip me up, he was not able to do that. This man's supposed to be a theologian and a historian. He seemed to know his scripture. He seemed to know the scripture, but he sure as hell doesn't know the story. Anybody could recite 30,000 verses, but what do they mean? What do they mean in historical context? What do they mean in the context of, of the book? And, and I am not a verse memorizer, but I, I would claim to would have a pretty good grip on the story and a pretty good grip on the Bible as it stands in the context of history and in the context of itself. I mean, you can't understand Jeremiah and, and Isaiah with, without understanding Kings and Chronicles. You can't understand... Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and their prophecies, unless you understand um, world history and, and the centuries subsequent to Jeremiah and Isaiah to see the fulfillment of those prophecies. So things like that, that that's where I think I excel, and, and not necessarily with the memorizing of Scripture, because I, I like to say that all the Scripture I remember is by, by, by accident of having a halfway decent memory. I, I never tried to memorize Scripture. Uh, I've read the King James through, of course. 
I've read the Septuagint through. I've read the Dead Sea Scrolls through. But I never read Scripture in order to memorize it. I always read Scripture in order to grasp the story like one would read a history book. That's my, my approach to Scripture, except, of course, the New Testament translating it. I've read the Greek at least half a dozen times. And, and then it, it, when I was translating the New Testament, I, I did three drafts. I still made mistakes, right? I did three drafts of each book and, and um, really took my time. And that, that was a lot of deep reading, right? But, but it wasn't rote memorization of verses is not my forte. Okay, well, well, with all of that aside, Giuliani seems to have a lot of verses down pretty pat, um, but he doesn't know the story. And, and he tried to challenge me on Scripture, and he couldn't shake me. And he couldn't refute anything I said. And we talked a little bit about history, and, and I gave some of the historical background, as, a, as I said, and Giuliani couldn't touch me on ancient history. He didn't even really try to go there. And um, I thought the first hour of the program was fruitful, but evidently his his um, inquiry wasn't honest. And, and he, as I said, between the segments and in the many commercials, that there were a lot of commercials. It was really, um, it, it was really disruptive. All the commercials. It, it's like you get five minutes to talk, and, and that's about it. And then there's another commercial. It was crazy. Well, well um, maybe I'm just too used to this talk show commercial-free and, and my own chat server commercial-free um, programming, and, and um, maybe that just spoiled me, but the, the number of commercials on Oracle Broadcasting, and I've seen the same thing on Republic Radio, listening to programs there, and, and the number of commercials is just incredible. So that's disruptive. And, but we spoke in between the, in between the segments, and he had nothing... Um, there was no indication of animosity on his part towards me or my message in between the segments. And, and like I said, I really believe that the things we talked about tipped them off to, as to what not to bring up when the commercials ended and, and we were back on the air. That, that's my opinion. The last half hour of the program, he became argumentative but gave me little time to address him he took two callers when he had said he wasn't going to take callers. He took two callers that I believe he knew what they were going to, what, what issues they were going to raise. I think that was dishonest of him. He took the callers to run me out of time. That was my assessment. In the last 10 minutes of the program, although he couldn't refute any point that I made, he started babbling and calling God. A, a schizophrenic and a hypocrite and blaspheming God. That's what he started to do. So basically, fr from my perspective, he couldn't put up an argument against me, and he was reduced to blaspheming God. That's the way I look at that program. I I'm probably going to listen to it again one day next week. I really don't like to go back to listen to myself. I'm really not full of myself. I like to finish the program and, and move on, to be honest. But I, I might go back to listen to his program last week. I, I received one amicable email from him that, that um, a, about eight, ten hours after the program, 
that said that he had a good time and he might have me on again in a few weeks or so with a little smiley face, right? So, so I figured, well, maybe he doesn't really mean it. But on Thursday on his program and on Friday on his program, he spent four hours, two hours Thursday and two hours Friday, slandering me, slandering the Bible, slandering Christ, and, and um, I, I think that's really funny because evidently this guy couldn't debate with me, and I really got under his skin. He is really whining about me like a little bitch. He's been doing it for two days. And, and you know, I look at it from this perspective. If he is indeed a tear, and, and I don't know who he is, right? He looks like a good decent white Italian guy, but well, you never know, right? I, I mean, he could be a tear or, or a paid wolf or whatever. Um, if he's indeed a tear, then I, I think I've done a good job. I, I think I've done a great job. If he's adversarial to the gospel of Christ, I've done a wonderful job because I look at it the way Adolf Hitler looked at it. If the Jews aren't saying nasty things about you in the media in the morning, then the day before that, you didn't do anything worth doing. That, that's, a, that's a paraphrase from something Adolf Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf. If the Jews aren't talking bad about you today, you did not do your job yesterday. And when the Jews are talking bad about you today, pat yourself on the back because you did your job yesterday. So it feels good to get under Satan's skin. That's, that, that's all I have to say about Charles Giuliani. He's a blasphemous man. He should know better. And and he accused me of, of taking the – he accused Christian identity of being Jewish, right? Because we're separatists. He doesn't get that – he claims to be an anti-Zionist. He claims to be an anti-Jew. He's constantly using the phrase Jew pig. It's one of his favorite phrases. But he doesn't understand that it is – the Jew that wants to integrate with other races every white nation. This is not a secret. It's in their own writings over and over again. It's in videos available all over the Internet, including Christagenia.org, Barbara Lerner Specter, that Jew whore, Annette Kahane, another Jew whore, that insists on multiculturalizing Europe. And, and what's funny is at the beginning of the program, I, I think I remember mentioning the 1.2 billion yellow people in China that nobody was trying to no, nobody was trying to mix up with other races. Well, well anyway, he, he's adopted the entire Jew agenda. He wants to take people that aren't white and train them up as whites. That's what Jews do. Jews love to do that. Christ slammed the Jews for taking proselytes and making them twice fold the children of hell. That's what Charles Giuliani wants to do. That's his agenda, is to mix up the white race with the other races. That's antithetical to Christianity. It's anti-God. The first law of God being kind after kind, everything after its kind. I explained to him on a program and he did not refute that Yahweh, our God, hates bastards. Christ said, 
every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. Giuliani's agenda is the Jewish agenda because it's an agenda of integration. Satan, as Clifton Emma Heiser once said, is the god of integration. Yahweh is the god of segregation. If you love God's creation, you will be a segregationist. You will be a separatist. You will not want to see God's creation ruined through miscegenation. And that stance is a fact no matter what you think about the origin of the non-white races. What you think about the origin of the non-white races is absolutely immaterial. None of us in identity dispute, so far as I know, that are true identity, not even E.Y. James disputes, that Yahweh demands segregation. And Charles Giuliani stands against that. That means that he is a Jew, at least between the ears. And that's all I'll say about my program Wednesday. It's on the front page of Christagenia. It's going to remain on the front page for a couple of weeks. Once it gets four or 500 downloads, I will probably um, relegate it to the archives, like as is my usual custom. Okay. I have two scriptures for Charles Giuliani. I, 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 I haven't been looking at my computer. I've had them out. Proverbs 14.12. There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That is the outcome of race mixing and integration, the ways of death. Wide is the path to destruction. There are many who find it. Hebrews 3.12, take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. God will not be mocked. Those who mock him, those who accuse Christ of being a Jew Zionist pig, shall be judged by Yahweh. Charles Giuliani will not escape that judgment. Last week, discussing Matthew chapter 8, where Christ is recorded as having said, at verse 11, I say to you that many shall come from the east and west, and they shall recline with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of the heavens. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outermost darkness. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, first I quoted Psalm 107, verses 1 to 3, and I'll read them again here. O oh, give thanks unto Yahweh, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of Yahweh say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gather them out of the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. And as we see at Luke, chapter 1, verse 71, part of the purpose of Christ was to bring us preservation from our enemies from the hand of all those who hate us, Mr. Giuliani and your little Indian friend. Just as we professed it, we see it professed in Psalm 107, the purpose of Christ, as stated by David and as stated by Luke, and, and that was Luke was quoting Zechariah, what was to save us from our enemies, 
And I also quoted Psalm 112 in part, verse 10, The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. All the integrationists. We need to be bought back from the enemy because it is clearly evident from the scripture that in our sin, the enemy rules over us. They do to this very day. It is they who are the wicked who shall be gnashing their teeth in Psalm 112. As recorded by Psalm 112. Therefore, I remarked last week that the sons of this, of the kingdom are those who pretend to have the law and the prophets in the time of Christ. Those in the seats of authority in Jerusalem. But they are not necessarily Israelites. We are told in Luke, and we'll see that tonight here, and we are told in Matthew, that the violent ones, the kingdom, the law and the prophets were taught until John. Since then, the kingdom of heaven has been preached, and the violent ones take it by force. Or in Luke, the violent ones force their way into it. And we see the Edomite Jew has forced his way into and usurped, infiltrating just about every Saxon government. Just like they infiltrated, they forced their way into the Roman papacy when the popes ruled the white world. Today they've infiltrated and taken, basically by force, every Saxon government by extortion, by bribery, Plus, they've infiltrated all of our religious institutions, all of our academic institutions. They've taken over our economies. They are the sons of the kingdom. There's no doubt. They are the de facto rulers of the white world and, and the entire world by extension. There should be no doubt. They are all usurpers. And that is why they will be put out. Many will come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But Rahm Emanuel, Barack Obama, David Axelrod, all the kikes in the, in the houses of lords and, and commons in Britain, all the Edomite Jews in the United States Senate, they're all going to be put out, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some people from Oracle Broadcasting are also going to be on that list. Luke chapter 4, Christ makes no contrary remark when the devil claims that all of the kingdoms of the earth are under his control. So it was true at that time, just like it is true at this time. Christ merely responded, Thou shalt worship Yahweh thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Paul mentions the prince of this world at Ephesians 2.2. Christ also mentioned that same thing where he said, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and has nothing in me, meaning 
he has nothing to do with Christ. That's John 14.30. Therefore, it is evident that the sons of the kingdom, meaning those who are in, are in control of these worldly kingdoms, they are not necessarily the children of Yahweh, and they are certainly the children of the devil. Here are two statements, two further statements by Christ, which fully support my interpretation of Matthew 8, 11, and 12. The first one is John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. John 16, 11, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. It should be perfectly clear the prince of this world who is being cast out in John chapter 12 is the same as the sons of the kingdom being cast out in Matthew chapter 8. The phrase prince of this world I see as a collective epithet for those Kenite bastards who have infiltrated and usurped every white nation in history until this very time. So that is my answer to my critic of, and, and actually he is a dear and good brother, but he's my critic of my interpretation of Matthew 8, 11, and 12. Now I will finally start with Matthew chapter 10. We might be here a while tonight. Verse 1. And summoning 12 of his students, or disciples, he had given to them authority over unclean spirits so as to cast them out and to heal every disease and every weakness. Now, these are the names of the twelve ambassadors, or apostles. First, Simon, who is called Petros, Peter, and Andreas, his brother, and Jacob, the son of Zebedias, and John, his brother, that's the beloved apostle John, Philippus and Bartholomaeus, Thomas and Matthias, or Matthew, the tax collector, Jacob, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, not Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also would betray him. Simon is not, as the King James has it, a Canaanite. However, the Greek manuscripts of Matthew were indeed divided on the issue at a very early time. The almost equally ancient codexes, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, they both date to the 4th century, have Canaanite and Canaanian, respectively. We all know what a Canaanite is. The Greeks didn't really use the word Canaanite. Matthew did in chapter 15, but the Greeks don't use the word Canaanite in their histories. It's not really a word in the Greek language. They didn't know the ethnic or geographical distinction, Canaanite, as far as all the Greek I have ever read and the lexicons I have perused. Canaanian means a person from Cana in Galilee. We see that Cana is the town where Christ had his, his wedding feast, right? John chapter 2, I think. The Sinaiticus Codex has Canaanite and the Vaticanus manuscript has Canaanian, and they each have roughly equal support from manuscripts which are nearly as old, many dating to the 5th century B.C. 
However, where we see that the same list occurs in Mark 3.18, all of the ancient codices have Simon as a Canaanian. The Sinaiticus has Canaanian in Mark, not Canaanite. In, in Mark 3.18, the Codex Alexandrinus, which is the main manuscript of what's called the Alexandrian tradition, right? The Codex Alexandrinus in Mark has Canaanite. The Codex Alexandrinus, most of Matthew is missing from. Let it be said that in both Matthew and Mark, the Codex Ephraim Siri, which usually agrees with the Codex Alexandrinus, has also Simon the Canaanian. And so even the Alexandrian tradition is split on the matter of Simon's ethnic identity. One thing is clear, however, and, and Canaanian is really a geographical identity. It's not ethnic. One thing is clear, and that is that the manuscripts which the King James Version is, are based on has followed quite closely to the Alexandrian tradition, which the passage in Mark demonstrates. Something else is quite certain, and that is that the corruption of texts upon which the New Testament is based was attempted at the earliest time, whether it was purposeful or not. There are divergences in the text, and some of them are significant right from the, the, the earliest manuscripts that we are able today to, to obtain, right, which is generally the 3rd and 4th centuries. Here, the preponderance of the evidence, considering both Matthew and Mark, where the same list appears, is that Simon was a Canaanian. He was a man of Cana and not a Canaanite. Luke calls Simon the Zealot, and many errant commentators take that as a meaning of the word Canaanite. However, this is highly unlikely. The Hebrew word, according to Strong, comes from a verb. The, the Hebrew word meaning zealot, I'm sorry, meaning Canaanite, comes from a verb meaning to humiliate. So it's highly improbable that Luke would be translating Canaanite or Canaan into zealot because Canaan means to humiliate at its root. And we see that Canaan was indeed cursed and humiliated from his birth due to the circumstances of his birth. It's much more plausible that Simon was from the city Cana, where Yahshua attended the wedding described in the opening chapters of John's Gospel, and therefore he would be called Simon the Canaanian, and that Zealot, as we see in Luke, is just a nickname unassociated with the word Canaanian. In John's Gospel, in chapter 21, verse 2, there is mention an apostle who is Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and John tells us that's where he came from. And he's also mentioned by John five times in chapter 1 of his Gospel, in verses 45 to 49. Now, Nathaniel is not mentioned at all in any of the other Gospels. And this Nathaniel is the man whom Christ said, had said, 
Look, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. And it is therefore, I believe, certain that Simon the Canaanian and Nathanael from Cana are one and the same. And that he's actually Simon Nathanael, the zealot of Cana. Now, I must mention that some commentators think that the Nathaniel of John is Bartholomew, the apostle. But that has no corroboration at all. And I believe that Simon the Canaanian is the Nathaniel of John's gospel. And a lot of, most of these Greek men and Hebrew men had more than one name. Roman men had, had as many as four names. One of them being a, a, a wider family name, like a clan name. One of them being a family name. One of them being a given name. And one of them often being a nickname. It was very common for Roman men to have four names. And, and there were many instances of Greek men having two and three names. <laughs> so Simon cannot be a Can- He can't be a Canaanite in the context of Scripture. And, and the preponderance of the evidence is that he is a Canaanian. Verse 5. These twelve, Yahshua sent out commanding to them, saying, You should not depart into the way of the heathens or nations, and you should not enter into a city of the Samaritans. But rather, you must go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here is one of the most... Misunderstood verses in Scripture, even among Christian identity pastors or adherents. Many think that the command not to go unto the nations conflicts with the idea that the nations of the Oikumene descended mostly from ancient Israel. But it really does not conflict. Firstly, Christ was not yet crucified. And therefore, Yahweh was not yet reconciled to a divorced Israel. So the message of the gospel was not yet prepared for them. This is the ministry of reconciliation which Paul later describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and elsewhere. That Yahshua died to become reconciled and to reconcile Yahweh to Israel. So the apostles could not yet go to non-Israelites. Secondly, Yahshua here is talking to the apostles on terms that they would understand. And at this time, and this can be proven in Scripture, the apostles understood Israel to include only the circumcision. Part of the proof of this lies in Acts chapter 10. And in Peter's need for the vision which he received then from God. The apostles being unlearned in literature were not aware of the identity of the long ago dispersed Israelites which was the entire reason for the later ministry of Paul of Tarsus. So when Yahshua told these apostles to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, they certainly would have thought that he meant 
the people, the Israelite people of Judea. There's apparently some a, a note here that dropped out of my notes, and, and I'll make a point of it. Where Christ um, gave the apostles authority over unclean spirits so as to cast them out and to heal every disease and every weakness. That passage should be cross-referenced to John 1, chapter 12, I think it is, where John, it might be, I'm sorry, verse 12, I think it might be John 1, verse 11, but as I said, this dropped out of my notes, right? Where John tells us that to those who believed in Christ, he gave to them, as I translated from the Greek, the authority that the children of Yahweh would come to have or were to attain, which is what the Greek means. He didn't give to them, as the King James has it, authority to become somehow children of God. They were Israelites. They were children of God. But this is what John is talking about. To those who received him, to those he chose as apostles, he gave to them the power that the children of God will all one day have. And here we see what that power was. Matthew 10, verse 7. And going, you proclaim that the saying that the kingdom of heaven of the heavens is neared. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely you must give. Do not procure gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, nor a bag for the way, nor two cloaks, nor sandals, nor a staff. For the workman is worthy of his provisions. And into whatever city or town you should enter, scrutinize whether anyone in it is worthy, and there abide when you should depart. The Judeo-Christians would really balk at that last verse. How dare you scrutinize anybody? That you can't be judgmental. Christ demands that we scrutinize those people that we're going to preach the gospel with to find whether any of them are worthy. The gospel of the kingdom, and that's what he's having them preach here, although they're not really explaining it, they're just issuing an admonition. The gospel of the kingdom is as we learn from Paul's epistles, the restoration of Israel to the favor and the polity of God. And, eventually, the return to obedience and to his word by all of the Adamic people. Freely you have received, freely you must give. When the prophet Elisha healed Naaman, the king of Syria, of his leprosy, by telling him to wash himself in the Jordan seven times, Naaman returned and tried to give him a gift. Elisha responded, As Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. 
All Elisha really did was pass the instructions which God gave him on to Naaman, the king of Syria. Elisha received them freely, and therefore he could not take anything for them in return. Yet, the workman is worthy of his provisions. Just as the Levites, for example, at Numbers chapter 18, verse 31, ate from the sacrifices of the people, the apostles were told to anticipate their sustenance from the good people of the community that they entered into. These instructions were for the apostles during the ministry of Christ. They did not apply afterwards of their later missions. Where at Luke chapter 22, verses 35 and 36, it is recorded that he said to them, When I sent you without purse and wallet and sandals, speaking of this very incident, did you have want of anything? And they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he having a purse must take it, and likewise a wallet. And he, not having a sword, must sell his garment and buy one. This goes hand in hand with the foreknowledge of the Christians, the foreknowledge of Christ, that Christians would be persecuted and would most often have to fend for and have to defend themselves. So we see that common sense must prevail in our quest for the kingdom. Verse 12. But going into the house, you shall greet it. And indeed, if the house should be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it should not be worthy, your peace must return to you. And whoever would not receive you nor hear your words... Going out of that house or city, shake the dust from your feet. Christians, in other words, are not expected to extend warmth and kindness merely to anybody, as so many of us have wrongly been led to believe. If one does not listen to, and if one does not receive your Christian profession, you should have nothing to do with him at all. Christ has no agreement with Belial, and light has no concord with darkness. Matthew 10, verse 15. Truly I say to you, it shall be better for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city, that city that rejects his apostles. This doesn't really mean that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be resurrected and judged. Firstly, it, can, it cannot even be established that the residents of those cities at the time of Abraham and Lot were all Canaanites. They were generally Canaanite cities. At the time of Noah, they were, Can they were assigned after the Tower of Babel event as Canaanite cities. We're told that in the scripture. But that doesn't mean that they remained exclusively Canaanite cities. Actually, there were many Egyptians, many Assyrians, many Babylonians and Syrians, and, and much of the Canaanite world was very cosmopolitan. 
Rather, this states that for those who reject the gospel of the kingdom, it will be worse for them in the judgment than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 16. Behold, I send you off as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and pure as doves. This warning is every bit as profound today as it was then. The white Adamite has long played the part of the sheep. Regardless of the false claims of the Jew, the false, the false accusations which Satan makes, we have been a relatively passive and non-reactionary people throughout most of our history. Today, just as it was in first century Judea, the wolves most often have the advantage. We should not be trying to convert the wolves. That is futile. We must be able to identify the wolves if we are to beware of them. That is genetic. Rather, we should be seeking the sheep out from among the wolves and protecting them from the wolves. That's what real pastors are supposed to do. While being aware of the tactics of the wolves, we should be pure as doves. The word also intones pureness of heart. Christians should be straightforward and without guile, while at the same time, also giving the, reason, giving the wolves no reason for accusation, which we all know they love to partake in. Let me read Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. A lot of mainstream universalists pastors or, or Bible interpreters might try to say that the wolves are simply false teachers. That is a lie. Paul distinguished between wolves and false sheep teachers. There's a difference. Where Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Also, Paul goes on, verse 30, Of your own selves men shall arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Paul makes a serious distinction there, and a very clear distinction between the wolves and the people among us who decide on teaching false doctrines. Do men gather, as Christ said in Matthew chapter 7, grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Sheep cannot be wolves, and wolves cannot be sheep. Do not attempt to gather sheep from wolves. Matthew 10, verse 17. But take heed on account of men. For they shall hand you over to councils, and they shall whip you in their assembly halls. And you shall be brought before governors and even kings because of me, 
for a testimony to them and to the nations. This was fulfilled with the early Christian martyrs. For 300 years, Christians were persecuted at the instigation of the Jews. Christians were indeed, and there are many records of this, dragged before kings, governors, and judges. You know, little things like this in the Gospels, which are hardly ever really noticed or which are taken for granted by nearly all Christians, little things like this indeed prove that Christianity is true. How could Christ make such a statement and we see that this all came true. And he made this statement with absolutely bold confidence. And there's no doubt, we have records, that this Gospel of Matthew existed in the first century A.D. Very much in the form which we have it. How was Christ so confident that thousands of people would profess him and follow him to his death for a mere profession of their faith. Only because Christ indeed knew it was true, that it was going to happen. And only God could know such things so far ahead of time. So little things like this prove that Christianity is true and every other religion is a lie. Verse 19. And when they should hand you over, you should not have care for or how or what you should speak. For it shall be given to you at that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who are speaking but the spirit of your Father, which is speaking in you. In your time of calamity, you will be empowered to say the things that God wants you to say. If you feel as though you have failed to say something, be not ashamed, for perhaps God did not want you to say it. Verse 21. For brother shall hand brother over unto death, and father, child, and children shall rise up against parents, and shall slay them, and you shall be hated by all on account of my name, but he abiding to the end shall be saved. Do not expect to be loved if you are adhering to the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel divides even families against one another, and thus it was in the pagan Roman world when in many cases these things actually did happen. These things are recorded very often, and they serve as an example for us today. Verse 23, And when they should persecute you in this city, flee to another. For truly I say to you, by no means should you exhaust the cities of Israel until when the Son of Man should come. Christians are still being persecuted by the children of Satan 
merely for being Christians. The proof of this lies in events such as the Thirty Years' War, the destruction of Christian Russia by the Jewish Bolsheviks, the destruction of Christian Germany by capitalist Jews, globalist capitalist Jews, and many other events in our history. Now, we don't all see these events like this. We don't see these events like this because we believe the Jewish propaganda that the Jewish media spouts. The destruction of Christian Russia by Jewish Bolsheviks was a purposeful destruction of white Christians by Jews. The destruction of Christian Germany by Jewish capitalists, which we joined in as a nation, was the destruction of white Christians by Jews. Adolf Hitler was a Christian with a Christian agenda for Germany, even though it was encapsulated in a political philosophy. The Jews despised him for it and raised the horns of propaganda until the English and the Americans agreed to destroy him. It was the destruction of a white Christian nation because their leaders wanted a Christian nation, a moral nation without Jewish smut, without Jewish filth pouring from every television and every movie screen and every theater and every radio like we see here today. You can frame it in political terms, but those wars are basically the destruction of Christians at the instigation of the Jews. That we see this battle of the Jew against Christianity still ongoing after 2,000 years by itself is full proof that our Christianity is true and everything else is a lie. Verse 24. There is not a student above the teacher. nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a student that he may be as his teacher and a servant as his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, or Beelzebul, depending on which manuscript you read, how much more those of his house? Of course, no Christian should seek to exalt himself above Christ. But we should all seek to be like him. Yet if the enemies of God persecuted and murdered God in the flesh, and if they slandered and blasphemed him, and they still do today, then we should expect nothing but the same from them. That's what Christ is telling us here. Therefore, there should never be any fellowship between Christians and Jews. 
They've manifested it. After 40 generations, they're still doing the same thing. After 80 generations, they're still doing the same things. This is a racial... If this were not a racial war, then the Jews wouldn't be acting today as they did two, three, four, and 5,000 years ago when they were called by other names. There should never be any outreach of Christians to Jews if Jesus could not convert them. No man will ever be able to convert them. Why don't the so-called Judeo-Christians read and understand the plain and simple meaning of these words is absolutely beyond me. The very passage, Judeo, the very phrase Judeo-Christian is an obvious oxymoron in the light of Scripture. Verse 28. Therefore, you should not fear them, for nothing is hidden which shall not be revealed, and secret, which shall not be made known. That which I say to you in the darkness, you speak in the light, and that which you hear in the ear, proclaim upon the housetops. How can a Christian ever be afraid to speak the truth? Oh, I can't say that. Oh, yes, you can. You can say that. If you have one bit of faith in God, you will say it. If you are persecuted for speaking the truth, then be proud of it, because your reward is great in heaven. And do not fear the, from those killing the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather, fear he who is able to also slay the soul and body in Gehenna. Christians should never have any fear of Jew nor beast. We should only have fear of our God. If we deny or conceal the truth before our fellows, what shall our God think of us when we stand before him? Let me read from Brenton Septuagint. 4 Maccabees, chapter 13, verses 12 through 17, which while we may or may not except the book is canon, it nevertheless is 2,000 years old, and it nevertheless reflects the attitudes that Christ also professes here in this passage. Verse 12, and another, remember of what stock ye are, and by the hand of our father Isaac, endured to be slain for the sake of piety. And one and all, looking on each other, serene and confident, said, Let us sacrifice with all our heart our souls to God who gave them, and employ our bodies for the keeping of the law. Let us fear not him who thinks he kills, for great is the trial of the soul and danger of eternal torment, laid up for those who transgress the commandment of God. Let us arm ourselves, therefore, in the abnegation of the divine reasoning, 
If we suffer thus, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will receive us, and all the fathers will commend us. The book for Maccabees. is a moral one about the power of faith over the flesh. And the story here is about seven brethren and their father who chose death over violation of the law, which they were commanded by Antiochus, the Greek ruler of Syria. Whether it's historically true or not, I cannot tell. However, it's a moral lesson, and it's not a historical book. The book shows the same attitude that Christ professes when he tells us not to fear those who can only kill our bodies. We should only fear him who has control over our spirits. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for Nazarian? And one of these does not fall upon the earth without the consent of your father. But of you, even the hairs of the head are all counted. Therefore, do not fear. You are worthy. You are worth more than many sparrows. Sparrows are, in other words, cheap. Yet Yahweh cares even for them. Therefore, he has much greater care for us. Personally, I only hope that the hairs of my head were counted as they were at 40 and not at 50. That's just a, 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 a funny. Verse 32. Therefore, each who shall agree with me before men, I shall also agree with him before my Father who is in the heavens. But he who should deny me before men, I shall also deny him before my Father who is in the heavens. Christ, being the Father in the flesh, is speaking in an exemplary manner. We can never deny the truth of the gospel before men, or we shall indeed suffer. We shall suffer for that much greater in the judgment to come. Many take this to mean denying Christ himself in an outright manner. I would think that it means something much deeper, because while many of us profess Christ with our lips, we deny him in one word or another, because we pick and choose which scriptures we want to accept and which we are want to reject. We can't reject any of the scripture, unless we have good reason to show that something doesn't belong in scripture. And there would better be documentary evidence to that effect. Because in essence, denying any part of the gospel is a denial of Christ. If you want to deny that he only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, then you are in effect denying Christ. At 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, Yahweh said, Them that honor me, I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
Matthew 10, verse 34. You should not suppose that I have come to put peace on the earth. I have not come to put peace, but a sword. For I have come to divide a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a bride against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are those of his own house. And we in Christian identity today can imagine just what it was like for Christians in ancient pagan Rome. We are often shunned and excoriated by our own families. Because we refuse to accept the universal religion of the empire. Yes, there is little difference between modern ecumenism and the universal paganism of old Rome, where just about anything became acceptable so long as one worshipped Caesar. Today, just about anything is acceptable so long as one worshipped the Jew. Today, we are for the most part merely shunned, but in the first few centuries of the Christian era, our forebears were often reported, arrested, and martyred merely for professing Christ. Christianity, as Christ says, I've come not to bring peace but a sword. Christianity is not about our own sick ideas of peace. Sick because they usually include placating aliens and sinners. Placating perverts and sexual deviants. That is not peace. As we have seen here, while covering Matthew chapter 5 several weeks ago, a true peacemaker is one who is willing to obey the laws of God and to reprove his fellows when they do not obey those laws. That is a true peacemaker. Contrary to the profession of the phony Judeo-Christians, Christ is not about peace. Christ is about obedience to God, love for our own kind, and the consequences of violating those precepts. Here in this passage, Matthew 10:34, Christ also quotes Micah 7, Micah chapter 7, verse 6, which reads, For the son dishonors the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Today, so far as I can imagine, and I've known a few Judeo-Christians in my time, only Christian identity, that is only true of, of, of Christians who are in Christian identity, that a man's enemies are those of his own house. Judeo-Christians, they don't care what their kids do. They don't care who their kids marry. Most of them. I mean, some of them might. They're told not to care who their kids marry. They're trained to accept black son-in-laws and, and, and squat monsters for daughter-in-laws. That only divides families who adhere to the racial covenants of God. Verse 37, 
He loving father or mother above me is not worthy of me, and he loving son or daughter above me is not worthy of me. If your daughter brings home a squat monster, you have to put her out on the street because it's a violation of Yahweh's law. If you don't do that, if you accept her sin, you become as guilty of it as she does. He who, vi- who loves father or mother or son or daughter above me, meaning Yahweh or Christ, is not worthy of me. He seeking his wife shall lose it, and he losing his life because of me shall find it. Those who ignore the advice which Yahshua gives in these verses may indeed find themselves to be unworthy of him. As the prophet Daniel said, Daniel chapter 12, Thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. One who seeks to preserve his life here above all else shall lose it anyway and may well have no reward and wake up to everlasting contempt. One disregarding his own life here on behalf of Christ shall have a great reward in the next life. Christ told us above all to keep his commandments and to love our brethren. Everything else is basically immaterial. If we do those few things, then we devote our life to our race and not to our bellies or to our own safety and well-being. Verse 40, he he receiving you receives me, meaning Christ, and he receiving me receives he who has sent me, meaning Yahweh. Paul of Tarsus has often been criticized for his statement in Galatians 4.14, and of my trial in the flesh you did not despise or loathe, but as a messenger of Yahweh you accepted me like Yahshua Christ. People accuse Paul of claiming to be like Christ, But that is not what Paul was saying at all. Rather, Paul was commending the Galatians that in spite of Paul's fleshly trials, in this case his poor eyesight, the Galatians nevertheless received him as a messenger of Christ, and therefore they received him as they would have received Christ himself. In other words, Paul was commending the Galatians because they were fulfilling these very words which Christ uttered to his followers here in Matthew 10.40. And Paul was recognizing that on their behalf. This is understood even further once one realizes the importance upon which Greek culture placed upon physical perfection. Paul's poor eyesight was a great reproach to him and a burden placed upon one claiming to be a messenger of God. We often bear the same prejudice today where we despise people with afflictions or with crippling debilitations, even though we don't speak of it openly. It's a fact of life. So when you receive your kin, 
who are Christians, I would hope, otherwise they shouldn't be considered your kin, then you are receiving Christ because you are doing him the favor. When you help your brother, you are helping Christ because you are doing him the favor. You might be doing it for your brother, but you're doing it for Christ. And we should always help our kin and receive our kin as if it, they were Christ themselves. Matthew 10, verse 41. He receiving a prophet in the name of a prophet gains reward of the prophet. And he receiving a righteous man in the name of a righteous man gains reward of the righteous man. In 1 Kings chapter 17, the widow of Zarephath received and sustained the prophet Elijah, and she was rewarded with sustenance in return. The grain and the oil, which she had a meager amount of, did not fail in a time of famine. But then her son fell ill, and she almost, he almost died. Yet she also received the life of her son. Elijah healed him, or, or had Yahweh heal him, even though she received the life of her son through additional trial. In 2 Kings chapter 4, the woman who made a place of rest for the prophet Elisha, not knowing for certain, but only perceiving that he was a man of God, a righteous man, was also rewarded. She conceived a son where before that time she had been barren. Now that child, too, while Elisha was there, nearly died being sick and was delivered through his mother's abidance in the faith. Here, we have those same promises if we also continue to exhibit that same faith. There's a common theme in those two examples from 1 Kings chapter 17 and 2 Kings chapter 4. The common theme is that in each instance, a single act of kindness was not really sufficient for the woman to reap a full reward from Yahweh. Rather, we must continue in faith without failure. The initial act of kindness by the widow of Zarephath towards Elijah was enough to feed her and her son but when her son fell ill, that alone was not enough to save her son or prevent him from falling ill. Rather, her son was healed because the woman continued to exhibit that same faith in God and that same kindness. And the same thing with the woman who received Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. Matthew 10, verse 42 And he who would give one of these little ones a single cup of cold water to drink in the name of a disciple or a student, truly I say to you, by no means should he lose his reward. There's nothing more important than taking care of our children. 
At Mark 9.41, it is recorded that Christ said, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. A cup of cold water was valued in the hot, dry climate of Palestine, and it was a sign in itself of the restoration of life, as Christ described himself as living water to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. We take care of the sheep, and we are rewarded accordingly. But we have absolutely no responsibility to care for wolves, dogs, and swine. And if we do, then we are neglecting the sheep, and we shall suffer as much for it. In, in fact, I believe it's um, Ecclesiasticus, the wisdom of Solomon in the Septuagint, which says that in chapter 12 that we'll be punished four times as much for it. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass that when Yahshua had finished appointing his twelve disciples, he passed over from there for which to teach and to proclaim in their cities. Then John, hearing in the prison, this is John the Baptist, the works of Christ, sending through his students, said to him, are you he who is coming, or do we expect another? And responding, Yahshua said to them, Going, to John's disciples, Going, report to John the things which you hear and see. The blind see again, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf mutes hear. And the dead are raised, and the poor have the good message announced. And he is, And blessed is he who would not be offended by me. In spite of his own spirit-inspired profession, when he baptized Christ, here we see that John the Baptist was unsure of whether or not he was the promised Messiah. Yahshua was the promised Messiah. This may be seen as an inconsistency in the Scripture by many people, but we need not see it that way. The apostles themselves expected the Messiah to deliver the kingdom of heaven on earth to the children of Israel immediately, for which, for which we may cite Acts chapter 1, verse 6, which states, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom again to Israel? Now John who had been in prison for some time already, had surely hoped for deliverance in this same manner, and therefore, languishing in prison, he was certainly confused concerning the purpose of Christ. For that same reason, after the ascension of Christ, there was also much dispute concerning him. So we see John in his languishing in prison, as I interpret this passage, started to doubt, expecting to be freed in a kingdom restored to Israel. 
Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. And upon their going, Yahshua began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What have you come out into the desert to see? A reed being shaken by the wind? Rather, what have you come out to see? A man clothed in soft things? Behold, those wearing soft clothes are in the houses of the kings. Rather, what have you come out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I say to you, and more extraordinary, extraordinary than a prophet. This is he concerning whom it was written. Behold, I shall send my messenger before your face, who shall prepare your way before you. Yahshua appeals to Malachi 3, verse 1, and in that manner he again proclaims himself to be that coming one, the Messiah. Here he also tells the people who John is and what the purpose of John's ministry was. Verse 11, Truly I say to you, there is not risen among those born of woman a greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of the heavens is greater than he. This verse to me demonstrates that those of us who are appointed by Yahweh for a special purpose are not any better than any of our brethren who are given no such gifts or office. Therefore, no matter our purpose in life, we must always be humble, or indeed, we shall be humbled. Verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of the heavens suffers violence, and the violent ones plunder it. For all the prophets in the law have prophesied until John, and if you wish to receive it, he is Elijah who is going to come. He having an ear to hear, must hear. The reference to John as Elijah is mentioned again in Matthew chapter 17, verse 12. This does not necessarily mean that John was Elijah personally. Rather, in that same chapter, Matthew chapter 17, we see that Elijah appeared in the transfiguration on the mount. And when that happened, he was not recognized as John the Baptist. Therefore, he must be a separate individual. The prophecy of John the Baptist at Luke chapter 1 verse 17 reads thus, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready a people prepared for Yahweh. The prophecy that Elijah would come, or that the spirit of Elijah would come, before the coming of the Messiah, is a dual prophecy. We see the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3 of John the Baptist, but we also see it in Malachi chapter 4, of the coming Elijah, where it says that Elijah would come before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. I believe, and Clifton Emmerheiser uttered this before me, that at the present time, the spirit of Elijah is here with us again, just like it was with John the Baptist. 
The spirit of Elijah is here in this Christian Israel identity message. We are the only sect of Christianity where it can be said, as it was said of Elijah in Malachi chapter 4, that he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Christian identity is the only sect of Christianity which actually cares about their genetic lineage. Here we are also warned that the kingdom of the heavens suffers violence and the violent ones plunder it. In Luke, at chapter 16, a similar statement, which was made to a different audience, it was made at a different time, it is not a copy of this account, reads a little differently. Quote, The law and the prophets were until John, from then the kingdom of Yahweh is proclaimed, and all forced their way into it. Those infiltrators who have forced their way into all of our Saxon nations through treachery and bribery, and who once they get in, open the floodgates to aliens and to every mean creature, those people are going to fail. Those who think that they can somehow convert themselves into Christians and share in the blessings promised exclusively to the children of Jacob, those people are going to fail. Charles Giuliani, take note of that. Yahweh has chosen Israel, the real Israel, and the aliens are not going to prosper. These statements are an assurance of that by Christ himself. Verse 16. But to what shall I compare this race? That's the word, race. It is like children sitting in the markets calling out to others things which say, we piped for you and you did not dance. We sang dirges and you did not mourn. Our race is dying, and our kin don't give a damn. We're being overrun by aliens, and they don't even care. They have niggers to worship on Sunday afternoon football. They don't care. I believe that this verse is saying, that, that this saying demonstrates the general apathy of the people under any and all circumstances. And that's what we see. And today we see that whether we pronounce the doom and gloom of inevitable judgment, or whether we pronounce a coming prosperity at the return of Yahshua Christ, it does not matter. The people, most of them, do not want to hear the truth. They prefer the world and the status quo. Verse 18. 
For John had come neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, the man is a glutton and a wine drinker, a friend of tax collectors and wrongdoers, and wisdom is justified by her works. And refusing to hear the truth, they shall despise the messenger. No matter how they perceive him, they find fault simply because it is convenient for them to find fault. They would rather find fault with the messenger, and that gives them an excuse and a justification for ignoring the truth. Verse 20. Then he began to upbraid the cities in which the greatest number of his works of power were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Because if there happened in Tyre and Sidon the feats which took place among you, long ago they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were Israelites. They were disobedient to Yahweh, and they were destroyed in the judgment. But I say to you, in Tyr and Sidon, it shall be better in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, shall you be exalted unto heaven. Unto Hades shall you descend. Because if in Sodom there had taken place the feats which took place in you, it would have abided until today, because even the Canaanites would have said, oh, and straightened out their act. But I say to you that for the land of Sodom it shall be better in the day of judgment than for you. So the people of Capernaum are in deep trouble. Think about the fate of all those people who stayed behind in the lands where Christ was rejected. Those people were overrun with Arabs. Today, their descendants of mixed race are living in a hellhole. If the Christians in those lands had believed their gospel, they should have long ago fled. Rather, they too would become overcome and mixed in with the blood of the enemies of God. We today we face that same fate throughout all white nations unless we repent. It is difficult to conceive that anyone could actually witness the mighty works of God firsthand and still not believe him unto repentance and obedience. But we have so many witnesses in Scripture that it actually happened in that manner time after time. If it were not for the mercy of God, none of us would be here today. It would be a very dark world in many different ways. Verse 25. At that time, Yahshua responding said, I gratefully acknowledge to you, Father, sovereign of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to babes. Yeah, Father, because thusly was it pleasing before you, 
all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son if not the Father, nor does anyone know the Father if not the Son, and to whom the Son may wish to reveal him. Later he tells his apostles that he is the Father indeed in the flesh. And we will be discussing that in the weeks to come. Yahweh revealed the hidden truths to babes, his unschooled followers, while those truths were kept from the academics, the priests and the scribes, and those in positions of worldly authority. And so it is today. It's no different. An education in the world is a sure sign that one shall be prevented from finding the truth. Because proper education has been appropriated for the purposes of indoctrination by the princes of this world. Those who have, who understand, and who accept the truth of the Bible only have it by the will of Yahweh, who alone imparts understanding. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all those who are toiling and being burdened, and I shall give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This language is important because I'm going to close with very similar language from the wisdom of Sirach. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am meek and humble in heart and you shall find rest for your souls for my yoke is kind and my burden is light. Christians only have peace in Christ and his yoke is a lot lighter than the burdens which worldly desires and rewards place upon us. Desire for worldly rewards cause us to put ourselves under the yoke of the princes of this world, which is a state of slavery. In closing tonight, I would like to read parts of the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 51, from the Apocrypha, from the Septuagint. And we shall again see that some of the ideas which we have just seen Christ express in Matthew existed in the learning of the Hebrews. He was really, in essence, repeating nothing new. He was only telling us again the same lessons that we should have as a race learned long ago. The fools in Judeo-Christianity try to say that Christ changed everything. No, Christ repeated everything that he, Yahweh, had been telling us for thousands of years. He's the same God. From the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 51, verse 1, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but a good amount of it. I will thank thee, O Yahweh, O Lord and King, and praise thee, O God, my Savior. I do give praise unto thy name, for thou art my defender and helper, 
and has preserved my body from destruction and from the snare of the slanderous tongue and from the lips that forge lies and has been mine helper against mine adversaries and has delivered me according to the multitude of thy mercies and greatness of thy name. From the teeth of them that were ready to devour me and out of the hands of such as sought after my life and from the manifold afflictions which I had. From the choking of fire on every side and from the midst of the fire which I kindled not. From the death of the belly of hell, from an unclean tongue and from lying words. By an accusation to the king, from an unrighteous tongue, my soul drew near even unto death. My life was near to the hell beneath. They compassed me on every side, and there was no man to help me. I looked for the succor of men, but there was none. Then thought I upon thy mercy, O Lord, and upon thy acts of old, how thou deliverest such as wait for thee, and savest them out of the hands of the enemies. Then lifted I up my supplications from the earth, and prayed for deliverance from death. I called upon the Lord, the Father of my Lord, that he would not leave me in the days of my trouble, and in the time of the proud, when there was no help. I will praise thy name continually, and will sing praises with thanksgiving. And so my prayer was heard. For thou savest me from destruction, and deliverest me from the evil time. Therefore, I will give thanks and praise thee, and bless thy name, O Lord. The Lord has given me a tongue for my reward, and I will praise him therewith. Draw near unto me, ye unlearned, and dwell in the house of learning. Wherefore are ye slow, and what ye say to these things, seeing your souls are very thirsty? I opened my mouth and said, Buy her, meaning wisdom, for yourselves without money. Put your neck under the yoke, and let your soul receive instruction. She is hard at hand to find. Behold with your eyes how that I have but little labor and have gotten unto me much rest. Get learning with a great sum of money and get much gold by her. Let your soul rejoice in his mercy and be not ashamed of his praise. Work your work betimes, and in his time he will give you your reward. We must seek the wisdom of God, and in that we find rest, and in that we find reward. His yoke is what we should take upon our necks. Otherwise, we shall be slaves. Thank you and good night, and I will be here next week with Clifton Emmerheiser. Praise Yahweh.